This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show. And this next one, well, it's about something so many of us do every day. Americans drink about 400 million cups of coffee. The drink itself represents 75% of our yearly caffeine consumption. So, needless to say, this drink is important to us. It's also important to the U.S. military. And today, Richard Muniz, our regular contributor and listener, shares an entertaining story on the subject. Take it away, Richard. There's an old expression that goes that an army travels on its belly. Well, if that's true, then coffee is the lubrication that runs that army. And if you've been in the military before, you know this is very important. Coffee just makes it so much easier. I know when we deployed to the Gulf, for instance, we took cooking utensils. The only time we actually used those cooking utensils was once when we made some French fries out of some potatoes we found. But the one thing that got used constantly was the coffee pot. Now, we didn't take coffee with us, but the first time anybody went to one of the local Arab towns like that, guess what they bought? Coffee. And we'd make coffee every morning we got up. Some people didn't want to sit there and wait for it, so what they just did was they heat up their water in their little canteen cups, put the instant coffee from the MRE packets in there, mix in a little bit of uh, hot chocolate, a little bit of creamy sugar. Hey, no, good coffee. Coffee has been a part of every armed forces that I know of. If you're a fan of the uh, movie Master and Commander, there's a scene in there where Aubrey's uh, cabin boy comes up and says, there's no more coffee, and Aubrey says, fine, we'll drink tea. Well, that just shows you how important it has been. Now, even during the Civil War, it was very important. Soldiers would ride home, and they'd tell about the battlefield experiences and stuff like that, but the word coffee was used more than anything else. One soldier wrote home, and he was complaining about lack of uh, food, lack of morale, lack of this, lack of that. But he specifically spelled out coffee. In fact, he said, how can you possibly soldier without coffee? The Confederacy didn't have a lot of coffee to have. What they used to do was they would go out and they would trade with Union soldiers. When there was no fighting going on, so like that, they would meet in a, I guess, a neutral zone, if you want to call it that, and they would trade. They would trade tobacco, which they had plenty of, for coffee. The average Union soldier got well over 30 pounds of coffee a year as his personal ration. So they had, they, the coffee was something the Union got. All the way through, World War I, coffee. World War II, coffee. In fact, some of the most iconic images that came out of World War II concerned coffee. Here was a GI, this little tin cup there, and he's toasting the folks back home with a hot cup of coffee. Very important. Coffee has played a very important part for all of us. A friend of mine tells me a story. He was in the Navy, not the Army. And now, I need to qualify something here. I don't know how true this story is. I know nothing about ships. I know nothing about uh, the traditions on ships. And he tells me this story. For all I know, maybe he stole it from somebody else. Maybe he hallucinated it. I don't know, but it's such a cool story. I'm going to tell it to you anyway. He went through uh, basic, he went through A school and all that stuff, and he did really, really well. And they said, hey, you did so well, we're gonna give you your choice of assignments. Well, here's a Trekkie, like Star Trek, and if you can't have Jim Kirk's Enterprise or Jean-Luc Picard's Enterprise, you settle for the one you got. In this case, the nuclear aircraft carrier Enterprise we have today. He wants the bridge of the Enterprise. 
thinking it'll be a fat chance he ever gets it. Well, guess what? He got it. Well, apparently there was a tradition on the bridge of the Enterprise. And like I said, I've never tried to check this out. So, you know, if there is, great. If there isn't, forgive me. What happens on the Enterprise is this. The lowest ranking EM on the bridge makes the coffee. Okay, that's pretty cool. Okay, so he gets up there and he decides, I am going to make the best cup of coffee the captain's ever had. And he's got, you know, visions of promotions dancing in his head or whatever the case may be, but he wants to make sure the captain never, ever forgets him. So he goes out and he studies how to make coffee. And he goes to libraries, reading every book he can find, every article, stuff like that. He goes to baristas who make coffee for a living and learns their, their secrets and whatnot. By the time he's finished, the only two entities in the entire universe that know more about making coffee than him is God and the guy in the Folgers commercial. So he goes out there and his first day on the bridge, he makes the coffee. The smell of coffee wafting through the bridge. I mean, it's phenomenal coffee. It smells, it smells great. Okay, the other tradition they had on the bridge was no one gets their cup until the captain gets his. Cool tradition. Well, he's sitting there waiting for the captain and all that stuff because you know, he's just sitting there going, oh yeah, yeah, the captain's going to take it and he's going to look at it and he's going to sit back in that chair and go, oh yeah, no, this is a cup of coffee. Well, Captain comes up, captain on the bridge, you know, all that stuff. Captain comes up, he's talking to everybody, pours his cup of coffee and sits down in his chair. And he's there talking, he's got his reports in front of him, puts his, puts his uh, cup of coffee there on, on the, his armchair. And he's reading the reports, talking, stuff like that. And then he reaches over, here's the moment of truth, picks up the coffee mug and takes a sip of it. And he's sitting there expecting the captain to smile, but that's not what happened. The captain spews this coffee all over a master chief that's standing there. Drops the cup of coffee like it was a snake, stands up and scans the bridge. And he says his eyes locked on him and said, what in the hell is wrong with you? Apparently there's two types of uh, water spigots on the ship. There's fresh water, which is what you drink. And then there's seawater, which you use for other purposes. He didn't know the difference. When it came time for promotion time, guess what? They didn't forget him either. And great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery for producing that piece. And thanks to Richard Muniz for his story, stories about coffee, and coffee in the military particularly. And again, if you have stories to share with us, we love hearing from listeners. And we've got a bunch of great listener contributions. Go to ouramericanstories.com. And you're going to see a space on the bar, your stories. And that's what you click. And then there's a space for you to type up the story. Send it to us. If we like what we hear, we're going to send out some recording equipment. And the next thing you know, you'll be listening to your story on the show. And again, these are truly some of our favorite stories. And they can be big. They can be small. We don't really have a bias. Just as long as they're entertaining and they move us in some way. Make us laugh. Make us cry. Make us think. Any of that combination is a good thing. Richard Munez's story, Coffee in the Military, here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and it's Infant Loss Month. President Reagan declared October as National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. And we've been sharing our listeners' stories and their own experiences with infant loss. And today we have the CEO of Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, an organization that trains, educates, and mobilizes professional quality photographers to provide pictures to families facing infant loss. This helps the families in their healing process. Here's Gina with her personal experience. My husband and I were pregnant with our first baby back in 2007, and we went in for the 20-week ultrasound, and essentially we just thought we were going to find out if we were having a boy or a girl, and we learned at that ultrasound that we were going to have a boy. So we went out and we bought clothes and just different things for him. Then about two weeks later, uh, we had gone out of town and our OB doctor had been out of town too. So when we went in for the ultrasound, we uh, were just with a ultrasound technician. We received a call from our doctor and he said that the ultrasound showed that David, our son, did not have kidneys. My first thought was, okay, how can we fix that? And our doctor said, well, you need to go and see a perinatologist, a specialist, to see if, you know, to, to, for him to look at it further. When we went to the doctor, he checked everything out and confirmed that our son did not have kidneys. And what we learned was that kidneys help actually produce the lungs or or develop the lungs because basically the baby will drink the amniotic fluid and then he'll pee it out and then drink it and that actually develops the lungs. And so the issue wasn't necessarily his lack of kidneys, but the fact that his lungs would not develop. We were told that we, you know, that he would probably come middle, mid 30 weeks gestation. And so Um, We just continued the pregnancy and uh, just tried to enjoy every moment that we we had with him. Just uh, sometimes he would move. He couldn't move a lot because there was no fluid, but we would just play music for him at night and just tried to spend whatever time we could with him. About uh, 34 weeks into the pregnancy, I started having contractions and went into labor. And so we went to the hospital to deliver David. Now, this whole, this whole time, you know, I, at that point, it had been a couple months that we knew that David would not live. I also learned about an organization called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. And that organization provides remembrance portraits to parents suffering the death of a baby. When a friend first told me about it, I was a little hesitant. I thought, is that appropriate to be taking pictures of a baby in this situation? But I went to the website and I saw how beautiful the photographs were. And I realized that we would never have this opportunity again to be able to photograph our son. And so I decided to have the photographs of our son. So when we went in to deliver David, uh, his heart was still beating. And when it was time for me to, uh, to push, they pulled the heart monitor off of him because they knew that he could possibly die during the delivery process. So they took the heart monitor off and 
the thing I was hoping for the most was that he would be born alive. And so when he was born, they he did not have a heart heartbeat. He was not breathing, and they handed him to me. And I was I was so crushed that our son wasn't born alive. But then at the same time, I remember looking at him and thinking, "Wow, he this baby was in me. He is beautiful." And just like any first time mom would feel about a baby, their their first baby just how beautiful and I cannot believe that I was carrying this baby but then the reality struck again that he was not alive we we spent some time with him and then our photographer came in and she photographed David and just you know documenting our time with him we gave him a bath we held him she we weighed him uh, we have pictures of him on the scale of each of us holding him of us as a family, of him alone, and uh, we, you know, we just cherish those moments that we had with him. About six hours after he was born, we just, we knew it was time that we needed to let him go, and it was one of the hardest things I ever did. To uh, give him over to a nurse and know that I would never hold him again. So at that, at that point, we, uh, you know, I was being discharged from the hospital, and we now needed to make funeral arrangements. And because we knew ahead of time, we were able to think some of those things through. There's many, many other families who lose a baby, and it's sudden, and they don't have that time to prepare. But we knew where we would where we would bury him. And so I remember going home that night, and trying to go to bed but then I realized where where is David is he at the hospital did the funeral home pick him up and I called the nurse at the hospital and she was back on her shift again and she assured me that he was still there and I was just wanting to know where my baby was so we went uh, so a few days later we had a memorial service and we buried our son David we were told that we could go on and have other children, that this was a fluke occurrence. And I had seen online other stories with babies who had uh, what, what is, it's called Potter syndrome, uh, where the, the parents go on and have healthy children and his chromosomes uh, turned up okay and all the other tests were fine. So we were clear to have another baby and we got pregnant a couple months later we were cautiously optimistic, and um, we went in for a, a number of ultrasounds. I was still considered in high, a high-risk pregnancy because of our situation, but we still would need to wait until the 16-week ultrasound to see if our baby had kidneys. So at the 16-week ultrasound, we went in, and the doctor was in there with the ultrasound technician, and I'm laying there, and he just pause and he said wait a minute let me step in and so he stepped in for the ultrasound technician and he was looking and we, I kept asking him what what's wrong what's going on and he wouldn't tell us but he just kept looking and I said does he have kidneys and he said he does and I said okay then what's what's going on because we knew something had to have been wrong he had uh, us go into another room and my husband and I just we waited for it seemed like forever and then the doctor came in and he said, um, your baby has a cyst around the neck and severe fluid buildup. 
and what we later learned was that it's cystic hygromas and hydrops, so the fluid and swelling around all of his organs. And at that point, they were unsure of the gender of our baby because of all the swelling. And then um, the doctor said that his heart could stop beating at any time. And so um, he said, since he can't move, and I didn't feel him move at all, that I need to come in every week to see if his heart is, is still beating. Every week we went in and I started getting more hope because I thought maybe this is our miracle. Maybe this is what we have to go through to have uh, to have our miracle. And, and nothing has ever been too easy for me throughout my life. So I thought maybe this is the miracle. Every week we went in and then by 24 weeks into the pregnancy, we learned that our baby's heart had stopped. And so uh, the doctor said, you can you know, you can still carry the baby for a while and you'll probably go into natural labor if you don't by a certain period of time. I can't remember how long that was. Then we would have to induce or you can go ahead and induce. And I looked at him. I said, what am I supposed to do if I'm still carrying him and knowing that he's died? So my husband and I went to the hospital that night and they induced labor. And we had a little boy that we named Ethan. And I had a camera in my bag. And I remember thinking, you know, let's get some pictures because when his when he was born, his condition was extremely severe. A lot of his features were not identifiable. He could see his hands and his feet, but the swelling was swelling was pretty severe. And I knew it wasn't a situation that we would bring now I lay me down to sleep out to. And I remember thinking about the camera in my bag that maybe with him covered in a blanket and my husband and I holding him, we could have a picture of him. But I just didn't have the courage to do it. And I didn't have um, anyone encouraging me to say, you know, go ahead and take some pictures. And um, so we never photographed Ethan. And that's one of the biggest regrets of my life. And what a story, Gina's story, and more of it after these messages here on Our American Stories. listening to Gina Harris's story here on Our American Stories. At this point, she experienced the loss of two children. And then when trying to get pregnant again, she had two more miscarriages. The organization Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep helped her in the grieving process of her first son, David. And it helped so much, she went to work for the group as the CEO. Shortly after starting her job there, something surprising happened. I was pregnant again, and I thought, how am I going to go through this pregnancy? I now work it now, I lay me down to sleep, and every I know every possible thing that can go wrong in a pregnancy. But here I was pregnant, and I knew I needed to embrace that and just try to be as courageous as possible and walk through this pregnancy. I was so sure that things 
were going well that we were going to have a girl. And with my uh, cheerleading and gymnastics background, I decided to look up how, how young or how old does she have to be to be in cheerleading and gymnastics. And I was looking that up and it was 18 months and I thought that's so far away. But, um, you know, I went in for the 16-week ultrasound and I told my husband, if this baby is healthy, then it's a miracle. And I said, but if this baby is a boy, it's a bigger miracle. But I still was sure that this is a girl, this is going to be our miracle. So we went in for the ultrasound and the doctor checked everything out and she said, your baby is 100% healthy. I don't see any reason for any um, any other test. And then she said, do you want to know the gender of the baby? And we said yes, and fully expecting it to be a girl. It popped up on the screen and it said, it's a boy, it's a boy. And I said, are you sure it's a boy? And um, I was so happy the baby was healthy. I didn't, it didn't matter if the baby was a boy or a girl, but then to learn that we were having a boy when we were told that we probably couldn't have a healthy boy um, was just so amazing. It was such a miracle. And we were just praising God and so thankful. So then, you know, we, 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 that whole day and for a while, we were so excited, but then more fear washed over me because like I said before, I knew everything that could go wrong in a pregnancy. And I had met at that point countless parents who was having a healthy baby and then their heart, the baby's heart stops at 40 weeks or um, there's, a, there's um, you know, just different issues that happen within delivery. And so, you know, we just, I just try to focus on the positive and 98% of the time I was fine, but I would be lying if I didn't say I wasn't a little worried and each week I, I would feel like he wasn't moving and so I would go to the doctor and do the stress tests and um, I didn't care what they thought of me if they thought I was nuts for coming in all the time. Well, on August 20th of 2012, my water broke in the middle of the night and we went to the hospital. And as, you know, we waited, um, you know, as I was laboring, uh, our baby's heart was going up and down frequently, and he went meconium, and um, my, I wasn't dilating as rapidly as I should have been. And so I asked the doctor after being there, it was probably about 14 hours after my water had broken, and I said, are we going to have to do a C-section? And she said, in a couple hours, if something doesn't change, yes, we're going to have to do that. But because of your situation... Uh, we, you know, we can go ahead and do the C-section if you really want that. The last thing I wanted to do was make a decision. I didn't want to make a decision on something and then for it to go wrong and then to regret that decision. And so when the, the doctor left, my husband and I started talking and it probably wasn't even a minute or two that passed and she came rushing in and said, your baby just made the decision because his heart rate had dropped so low uh, they rushed me in to have a C-section, an emergency C-section. And I remember telling my husband, I want video no matter what happens. So just roll the camera. I just, I, I need video. And no matter what happens, please just get the video. So when they did the C-section, I was still conscious at that point. And uh, they, they brought him out. And he wasn't crying right away, which we expected. Um, and then I heard the most beautiful sound, our baby cried. And I have that on video, and I have me crying and my husband crying. And uh, it, it was 
the most wonderful moment that um, you could ever imagine. After everything we'd been through, it was over five years on this journey, and to finally have a healthy baby that, you know, I delivered him and he cried, and then I was able to hold him, and then we were able to bring him home. And uh, his, he's named after my husband, so he's Robert David Harris Jr., and we call him RJ, and he's five now, and he's just the light of my life. And he knows his big brothers, David and Ethan. He talks about them, and, and we've been very open about about his uh, about his big brothers. We've let him know who his big brothers are. We've never kept it a secret from him. And he he uh, prays for them, and he sometimes will talk to them and talk about them. Recently, he asked me why. Why is David and Ethan, why weren't they healthy? And I said, honey, I, I don't know why, and I don't ask why anymore. I had resolved not to ask why anymore because I know that I'll, I'll never have the answer until I meet them again, until I am in heaven with them. I'll know why, and everything will make sense. And that's our, that's our story, and it's, it's not over. People will ask me questions and I don't know exactly how it's asked but this assumption that everything's better because now we have RJ and yes uh, I think partly it's better because when my husband and I we were grieving the loss of our babies but before we had RJ we were also grieving the fact that we may never raise children of our own and at least that part has been answered for us and we've chosen not to have any more children we just don't know how we would handle it if something happened and it's just not worth the risk we're one for five at this point and so that's what we're, we're sticking with RJ now but I think sometimes people feel once you have another child then things are are better for you and um, there's healing that's come over it'll be 10 years this month since we lost David but there, there's a lot of healing that's come with that, but we still miss our boys. We still love them. And, and I often say when I am speaking to people is that we have a, we have a choice on how we're going to respond. We don't have a choice over a lot of the tragedies that happen in our lives. These things happen, and we don't have a choice of what's come our way, but we do have a choice on how we're going to respond. Are we going to be bitter, or are we going to be better? And even though there's part of me that goes into the bitterness and I feel sorry for myself and bad about what happened, I always try to focus on the better part and what can I do to give David and Ethan's life purpose and meaning. And I found that how I can do that in a number of ways. And I, I couldn't do it without my faith either. That's been a significant part of this healing journey for me. So I would have people ask me, do you have children? And this was before I had RJ. It, depending on the situation would, would depend on how I answered it. But when I would tell them, yes, I have two boys in heaven, I typically was met with, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to bring that up. And then my response back was always, thank you for bringing it up. Thank you for asking if I have children. I love my boys. I'm so proud of them. And every time I can speak about them, it values their life and it shows their significance. And great job on that, Faith, as always. And Gina, 
What a story, and that's Gina Harris, now I lay me down to sleep.org. Gina, her husband, RJ, David and Ethan. We don't have a choice of what comes our way, she told her boy, but we do have a choice how we respond. What a response. Gina's story, her whole family story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we've been doing a healthcare series called Better Health at Lower Cost, brought to you by the Stetson Family Office. And this is our second on Alzheimer's. And we start off with a man named John talking about his wife, Carrie, and what it was like dropping her off at a memory care center. Today is the first day of the rest of my life. I took my wife to a memory care facility, the place where she will spend the rest of her life. There was no movie-style ending to the conclusion to the first part of our lives. No tearful goodbyes. I drive the 15 miles from our home without explanation. I take her hand and lead her into her new home. I tell her that she needs changes to her medication that require her to stay a few days. She smiles, but I do not sense a level of understanding. We are met and greeted warmly by several of the professional staff who guided us to the room that will be her new home. We walk slowly. She stops several times to admire the artwork that punctuates the hallway to her room. She has always loved art. Over the years, she passed on that appreciation to me one of the many gifts she gave me the first 50 years of our life together. We visited hundreds of art museums around the world and shared our enjoyment of some of the greatest masterpieces. Along the way, she gets excited about the pictures of other residents' children and grandchildren. She worked with children all of her life, and today they are the one thing that can get her to rise above her disease. She loves them all. We reached her room and she smiles again with recognition of many of the things she has loved through the years that I have secretly moved here. Her collections of Native American art, crystal hearts, and books catch her attention. She glances around the room, her eyes coming to rest on the many photographs of family and friends, living and deceased, and she beams yet again. They are all alive in her mind. And although many of the names are forgotten, the memory of their love and friendship is clear and strong. Far too soon, the support staff returns to divert her so that I can leave without her knowing I have gone. I leave thinking positively that we will continue to share experiences as we have in the past. 
I will just have to share those experiences for the both of us. I have memories of the past and hopes for the future, but Alzheimer's has taught me the importance of the moment. Nothing else really matters. Each day is complete with its victories and setbacks, and I rejoice or feel sorrow as each occurs. Tomorrow is very far away. This story is one that is told over and over. Same story, different people. This is just one of many of those whose spouse or family member has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. David Dolby, the son of Ray Dolby, an inventor and the man who created Dolby Sound, decided to take initiative along with his mother when his father Ray was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He's been involved since 2010. Uh, my name is David Dolby. I live in San Francisco, and I'm working on a number of different initiatives uh, to help accelerate the path to a cure for Alzheimer's disease. And I do this through our family foundation called the Ray and Dagmar Dolby Family Fund, uh, as well as through our family office uh, venture capital fund called Dolby Family Ventures. And one thing that struck me early on in learning about Alzheimer's disease was there were many gaps that were slowing down the pace of innovation and the rate of discovery and the impediment to allowing investors to gain confidence in opportunities. Uh, many of the largest companies in the pharma space looking at neurodegenerative diseases had been uh, becoming more reluctant to double down on investments. They were watching many failures in the space as uh, drugs proceeded into the clinic and undergoing human clinical trials with, with negative results. And so uh, really our our initiatives are all in, in service to fill the funnel with drugs in the pipeline, being able to better characterize and identify patients, and uh, really give alternative, uh, innovative ideas uh, an opportunity to be tested. My father uh, was Ray Dolby, an American inventor. Uh, when he was in his late 70s, he uh, received a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, and we quickly became aware that there wasn't a disease-modifying drug available to him or to anybody. We knew we wanted to spring into action, uh, and the, the way we knew how was to sort of follow in his footsteps of uh, investing in innovation and identifying uh, people that were taking risk in the space and working on important and challenging problems, uh, and really try and understand what's the right set of questions to ask at each step along the way. What is our theory of causality of the disease? Alzheimer's disease is composed of uh, a number of different factors which contribute to each individual's uh, resilience as well as their vulnerability to uh, be affected by uh, bad actors that are either native to our systems with mutation or uh, infections that come about or really the uh, the cascading effects of other environmental factors or factors of aging. Uh, it's only been in the last uh, perhaps 30 or 40 years that we've started to fully accept that uh, d dementia is not a normal part of aging and that it's something we believe we can reverse and that the way to uh, address this is to understand at what stage of progression is it still possible to 
interrupt these processes and ideally also reverse the effects. It is impossible for just one group to have all the funds that they need in the discovery of the prevention and cure of this disease. This is a project the whole world has had to gather together in order to find answers. The Finger Study, which is the Finnish Geriatric Intervention Study to prevent cognitive impairment and disability, investigated the effects of a two-year intervention, targeting several lifestyle and vascular risk factors simultaneously. The main aim is to prevent cognitive impairment, and secondary aims include decreasing disability, cardiovascular risk factors and related morbidities, depressive symptoms, and to have beneficial effects on the quality of life. Here is the lead researcher, Mia Kivipelto. I was the I was the person starting the finger trial. I am a physician. I'm MD. So for me, it has been always kind of interesting to work with interventions as well, really trying to move from observation to action. So I felt that now it's time to initiate something new. So I simply took the group and we researched money and started the finger trial. That was 10 years ago. I have actually my grandmother uh, who got Alzheimer's when I was young. I was a teenager. She was living in the same house where I was living. At that time, it took very long time before she got the diagnosis. So I still can remember the feeling. She, she was very close to me. And when she was, you know, changing her behavior, she was trying to hide things. She got a little bit different kind of personality. So that personal experience has helped me to understand how much Alzheimer's can mean for you and how important it is to try to find new means. Two-year multi-center randomized controlled trial with 1,260 participants aged 60 to 70 years recruited from previous studies. Participants were randomized into either the multi-domain intervention group or the control group. And the intervention was two years. And really, the results have been very encouraging. There have been earlier very many negative trials, but the earlier ones have been using single domain intervention. That means that they have been mainly focusing only on one intervention or one risk factor, for example, physical activity. So the results were very clear. There was a clear difference in cognition. So here the intervention group had 25% higher improvement. And finally, we can also see that even the risk for cognitive and functional decline is lower in the intervention group, and they have better health-related quality of life, even the risk of other diseases. Finger in Finger Study has come to mean more than its original acronym. Now, it symbolizes all hands and fingers across the world coming together to find the cure and prevention for this disease. The Cooper Clinic of Preventive Medicine located in Dallas, Texas, has some suggestions for living a brain-healthy lifestyle. Things like exercising your mind daily with crossword puzzles or Scrabble, getting at least 30 minutes of exercise a day. We have all become very aware that heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. But Dr. Cooper also encourages us to remember that what is good for your heart is also good for your brain. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And we'll bring you more stories about Alzheimer's because it touches 
so many millions of American families in our scientific community is hard at work trying to get solutions. This is Lee Habib, John and Kerry's story, the Dolby family story, so many families in this country's stories here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and our favorite subject, American history. And as always, our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are good and beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Though Lyndon Johnson, the 36th president, was a Texan and an absentee rancher with acreage west of Austin, and though Ronald Reagan, the 40th president, acted in westerns and owned a 688-acre ranch in Santa Barbara County, both were more hat than cow. Theodore Roosevelt, on the other hand, owned two ranches and ran cattle in North Dakota and Montana. He was just 42 years old when he took office, in 1901, the youngest president ever. It was the West that molded Roosevelt into a man. Also, it was where he learned to carry a big stick. Here to tell the story is Roger McGrath and Michael Blake. McGrath is a regular on our show, a regular contributor for the History Channel. Michael Blake is a two-time Emmy award-winning makeup artist and a respected film historian. Here's McGrath and Blake. Theodore Roosevelt was one of New York's most accomplished, adventurous, self-sacrificing, and patriotic sons. A Harvard graduate, author, cattle rancher, war hero, U.S. president, and the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize and the Medal of Honor. He was a towering American figure, whom sculptor Gutzon Borglum carved into Mount Rushmore alongside Washington Jefferson and Lincoln. Contributing mightily to making Roosevelt into the heroic man he became were his days in the Old West. Unfortunately, most Americans today know little about Theodore Roosevelt and next to nothing about his life on the frontier. Theodore Roosevelt is born in the heart of New York City in 1858, the second of four children to a prominent and wealthy family. He's not the sickly child often portrayed, but energetic and adventurous. Although he does suffer from severe asthma attacks, which gives him a reputation for ill health. At 11 years old, he hikes the Alps with his father, stride for stride, and later takes up boxing after being pummeled by two older boys. By the time he's in his late teens, he is a robust physical specimen, and his asthma attacks are less frequent. Roosevelt is homeschooled and proves a bright student and a voracious reader. He doesn't attend one of the proper prep schools, as most young men of his social class do, but is nonetheless 
admitted to Harvard University at age 18. His father, whom he loved and admired greatly, tells him to take care of his morals first, his health second, and his studies third. He takes his father's advice to heart and is a paragon of moral rectitude. He's also a top performer on the varsity rowing and boxing teams. He excels in the classroom, graduating magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa, and finishes in the top 12% of his class. His achievement is all the more impressive because his father died two years earlier. From the inheritance Roosevelt received, he could have settled into a life of indulgence and indolence. Instead, he enters Columbia Law School in the fall of 1880. At nearly the same time, he marries the love of his young life, Alice Lee. After a year at Columbia, the political bug bites him, and he's elected to the New York Assembly. He's in his second term when tragedy strikes. His wife gives birth to a daughter on February 12, 1884. But two days later, his mother dies of typhoid fever and his wife of kidney failure. The double blow leaves Roosevelt devastated. For a time, he throws himself into political work with a vengeance, but soon decides to seek solace in the frontier West. Theodore Roosevelt once said that if he hadn't gone west and hadn't spent time in the Dakota Territory, he never would have been president. While some may say, oh, that's typical hyperbole of Theodore, it's actually very true. Uh, at the time, in 1884, he had lost both his mother and his first wife on the same day, February 14th, Valentine's Day, within hours of each other. His first wife, Alice, had just given birth the day prior to their first child, who was also named Alice. So grief-stricken was he that he left the baby daughter in care of his older sister, Bamie, and he went out west to a cabin he had recently bought and cattle ranch in what is now the area of Medora, North Dakota. Theodore went west to mend his broken heart to escape. It's kind of an interesting trait of Roosevelt. Whenever he lost something uh, very important in his life, he went away, uh, This, in this case, going west. Uh, when he gave up the presidency uh, in 1909, he went to Africa, and after the... Uh, disastrous uh, 1912 election, which he lost to Woodrow Wilson, he went on that South American river trip. So it was always kind of an interesting trait of Theodore's that he would seek solace somewhere after a great loss. Roosevelt first experienced the West on a hunting trip to Dakota Territory in 1883. He roughed it on several hunts enjoying himself immensely. He also bought a ranch, the Maltese Cross, and stocked it with cattle. Now he is returning to the ranch, not for a visit, but to settle. These years in the West contribute mightily to shaping him into the man America will come to admire, a man who is part cattle puncher, which helps make the cowboy a symbol 
of our country. Without his time and experiences in what was still the Old West, Theodore Roosevelt would not have organized the Rough Riders, not have led the charge up San Juan Hill, and not have become president. In June 1884, Roosevelt gets off the Northern Pacific Railroad at the town of Medora, founded only the year before by a French nobleman turned rancher, the Marquis de Moray, and named for his wife. At the western edge of Dakota Territory, near the border with Montana Territory, Medora is in the heart of the Badlands. Despite the name and its rugged terrain, the Badlands have thousands of acres of grasslands, especially in the valley of the Little Missouri River, where Medora and several cattle ranches develop. The area is still frontier. Only eight years earlier, and 200 miles to the southwest, Custer and 200 men of the 7th Cavalry were massacred at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. When Theodore got to Medora area uh, in 1884 after the passing of his mother and wife, he uh, one of the first things he did within a day was he saddled up his favorite horse, Manitou, and went out for a ride for three days by himself into the wilderness. He wanted to test himself. He wanted to see if indeed he could be like those who he had read about in earlier days of the party pioneers, and he did quite well. From Medora, T.R. heads seven miles south to the Maltese Cross to begin his life as a rancher. He is soon dressed in a buckskin suit made for him by one of the first white women to settle in the region, Widow Maddox. He is armed with an ivory grip Colt revolver and a bowie knife. A wide brim hat sits on his head. When in the saddle, he wears spurs on the heels of his high top boots and stovepipe chaps. He writes his sister, Well, I have been having a glorious time here and am well hardened now. I have just come in for spending 13 hours in the saddle. First and foremost, the cattle have done well, and I regard the outlook for making the business a success as being very hopeful. This winter, I lost about 25 head from wolves, cold, etc. The others are in admirable shape, and I have about 155 calves. I shall put on a thousand more cattle and shall make it my regular business. I have never been in better health than on this trip. I am in the saddle all day long, either taking part in the roundup of cattle or hunting antelope. This country is growing on me. It has a curious, fantastic beauty of its own. Before the summer is out, Roosevelt lays claim to a large tract of land 35 miles to the north of the Maltese Cross. He erects a cabin on it, drives in a herd of cattle, and christens his new ranch Elkhorn. When the Marquis hears about it, he says he has an earlier claim to the same property. Roosevelt notes the Marquis has not built the cabin on the property or stocked it with cattle and ignores the Frenchman's protestations. Roosevelt understands that not standing fast 
will expose him to ridicule as a weakling. He desperately wants to be respected as a man who lives by the code of the West. Unwritten and informal, the code of the West develops during the 19th century in the American West. First and foremost, a man is expected to stand his ground, to have sand in the face of death. Many a man expresses it simply, I'll die before I'll run. A man is also expected to be loyal to his friends. The cowboys call it riding for the brand. A man is expected to work hard and pull his own weight. A man is never to steal another man's horse. That isn't mere theft, but can mean a death sentence for the man who is left without a horse. Certain forms of outlawry are tolerated. A highwayman can hold up a stagecoach or a train and take the express company's treasure box, but he is not to rob the passengers. A man's word is his bond. His word and his handshake are better than a legal contract. Women are to be treated with deference and respect. Roosevelt embraces the code of the West and is determined to live by it. When he first arrives, many suspect he's not up to it. Will this scion from a prominent family in New York be up to the rigors of life on the frontier? The glasses he wears don't help. However, he throws himself into working his ranches with such determination, energy, and stamina that even the most seasoned cowboys are impressed. But when faced with life or death, will he have sand? As a cattle operation, Theodore was uh, the boss, and during roundups, Theodore would uh, take t uh, take a job just like any other cowboy. And uh, he would do various jobs rounding up the cattle. The only thing he didn't do was rope any of the cattle because uh, of his poor eyesight. But he'd help in the branding and castrating the male cows and, and things like that. Uh, during one of the cattle drives uh, or cattle roundups, uh, Theodore was uh, noticing that some of his men were lagging behind and the cattle were starting to spread out. So he yelled to them and said, you there, hasten forward quickly now. Well, the cowboys simply looked at him for a moment and thought, what the heck was that? Now, most cowboys, when they round up uh, cattle, they'll do the various yas or yeehaws or whistles or all sorts of sound effects to get them to move. Well, when the cattle, cowboys in uh, Roosevelt's outfit got a little bored, they would yell at the cattle, hasten forward quickly after that moment. During his first summer on his ranches, Roosevelt is many miles west of the Elkhorn looking for stray horses. With the sun setting, he decides to ride to Mingusville, a town on the Montana side of the border with a small cluster of buildings, including a railroad station, a livery, and a hotel. It's dark by the time he stables his horse and walks towards Nolan's hotel. Two shots suddenly ring out from the bar and dining room of the hotel. Undeterred, Roosevelt walks inside and finds the bartender and several men 
as Roosevelt put it, wearing the kind of smile worn by men making believe to like what they don't like. Roosevelt also sees a drunken patron with a revolver in each hand, swearing and strutting back and forth. A clock on the wall has two bullet holes in its face, evidence of the drunk's prowess with his revolvers. When the drunk sees Roosevelt, he proclaims, Four eyes will treat the house to drinks. Roosevelt laughs along with everyone else and takes a seat at a table, hoping that will be the end of it. However, the drunk strides over to the table and repeats the demand. You're going to buy us a drink. And Theodore said, tried to ignore it. And again, he repeated his demand with a few cuss words in it. And Theodore always said, if it's at all possible to avoid a fight, avoid it. And he says, but if you can't, hit them and hit them hard so they don't get up. Well, Theodore, the man's standing in front of his table. And Theodore's sitting down and he's weaving and... Theodore said, well, if I've got to, I've got to. And as he stood up, he pushed the table aside and hit the man with a sharp right to the chin, a sharp left, and another right, driving him back. And you've been listening to Roger McGrath and Michael Blake tell the story of Teddy Roosevelt and his adventures out west. And he headed out west for one reason and one reason alone, to heal a broken heart. As always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to hear and see their terrific and free online courses. Their Constitution 101 course, I learned more about the Constitution than I did in three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. Go to hillsdale.edu. Here's McGrath and Blake. While collapsing to the floor, the drunk reflexively fires his guns, hitting no one. Roosevelt is ready to drop on the man with a knee to the ribs, but sees he's unconscious. Well, after this fight with the uh, drunken cowboy, all the cowboys in the area of Medora respected Theodore. They accepted him then as one. He had proved his mettle. Another incident that cements Roosevelt's reputation as a man with sand, and not just another Easterner playing cowboy, occurs just after the ice breaks up on the Little Missouri River. In fear for their lives from vigilantes in Montana, three men steal Roosevelt's boat that he tied to a tree just above the river's shoreline on his Elkhorn Ranch. When Roosevelt discovers the theft, he's outraged. He and two ranch hands set out in a second boat to capture the miscreants. The thieves have a couple days head start, but there are still ice flows on the river and the weather turns bitterly cold, forcing them to stop frequently, build fires, and hunt for game. After a week of pursuit, Roosevelt and his hands see the stolen boat moored on the riverbank and smoke coming from a campfire. They stealthily approach the campfire and see one man warming himself. Roosevelt springs out of the brush and levels a Winchester at the man. He offers no resistance and is taken prisoner. Still out hunting, his two partners return singly and suffer the same fate 
at the hands of Roosevelt. Now in two boats, Roosevelt, his ranch hands, and the prisoners continue downstream until they come upon a ranch and secure a wagon from the rancher. Well, Theodore didn't want to sit with his back to these three men riding alongside the driver in the wagon, so he followed the wagon in ankle-deep mud in the middle of February, and he walked the 45 miles to Dickinson to turn them over to the local law authority. And by the time he got there, his feet were almost frostbitten. He hadn't slept for 36 hours because he kept, he stayed awake the whole time to watch these guys so they didn't try to escape. When he turned them in, uh, he, the next morning when they were arraigned in front of a judge who happened to be somebody Theodore knew from his days at Columbia College when he was studying to be a lawyer, uh, and the judge's name was Western Star, um, he asked the judge not to charge the German man because he says, I don't think he knows what he's doing. And the German man profusely thanked Theodore for, for his efforts, and Theodore chuckled and said, well, that's the first time I've ever been thanked for calling someone an idiot. The other two men did get five-year terms, and uh, he had the respect of the local cattle owners, but they didn't understand why did you go to all that trouble when you could have just shot them or hung them, and that was it. And they didn't understand Theodore. And this was something very key to Theodore's makeup and something that would echo throughout the rest of his life, whether he was a New York police commissioner or in charge of the Civil Service Board or assistant secretary to the Navy or the governor of New York and then ultimately the president of the United States. Theodore didn't want vengeance. He wanted justice. And he saw justice serve. That was very important to him. Yes, it would have been easier to hang the three men or shoot them, but that was not what Theodore wanted. Uh, Obviously, if the men tried to shoot it out with them, they would have returned fire. But Theodore was determined to see these men brought to justice, and justice they were. Even out west, the politician in civic duty is in Roosevelt's blood is instrumental in organizing the Little Missouri Stockmen's Association, and at the organization's first meeting in December 1884, he's elected chairman, or some call it president, and re-elected in 1885 and 1886. Medora's newspaper, The Badlands Cowboy, says, The association can congratulate itself on again electing Theodore Roosevelt as president. Under his administration, everything moves quickly forward, and there is none of that time-consuming, fruitless talk that so invariably characterizes a deliberative assembly without a good presiding officer. Roosevelt becomes a member of the Montana Stock Growers Association in April 1885 and serves on one of that association's committees. As a member of both cattlemen's associations, Roosevelt is clearly not only accepted as a Westerner, but respected. Victor Stickney, the doctor who treated Roosevelt for blistered and frost-bitten feet, 
invites Roosevelt to give the keynote address at Dickinson's 4th of July celebration. Roosevelt accepts. At a little past noon on the 4th, Roosevelt begins his address to a crowd of hundreds. It is his first major public speech. He declares that though America shares a present with other nations, the future belongs to America. It's the same with Dakota Territory, he says. We, Grangers and Cowboys alike, have opened a new land. We are the pioneers. And as we shape the course of a stream near its head, our efforts have infinitely more effect in bending it in any given direction. Later in his speech, he expounds on a theme that will come to characterize him as a national political figure, says Roosevelt. Like all Americans, I like big things, big prairies, big forests and mountains, big wheat fields, railroads, and herds of cattle, too. Big factories, steamboats, and everything else. But we must keep steadily in mind that no people were ever yet benefited by riches if their property corrupted their virtue. It is of more importance that we should show ourselves honest, brave, truthful, and intelligent than that we should own all the railways and grain elevators in the world. Roosevelt concludes his address by saying he is now as much a Westerner as an Easterner and is proud to be considered such. The crowd applauds loudly and many roar their approval. On the train ride home from Dickinson to Medora, A.T. Packard, the publisher of The Badlands Cowboy, tells Roosevelt that his future is not as a rancher, but as a politician. Packard thinks Roosevelt will be president one day. Says Roosevelt, if your prophecy comes true, I will do my part to make a good one. Theodore Roosevelt is all of 27 years old. And you've been listening to Roger McGrath and Michael Blake tell the remarkable life story of Teddy Roosevelt. And my goodness, to earn the respect of a bunch of 19th century cattlemen, no duck walk. And he walked the walk. That bar fight probably sealed his fate. But that he ultimately joined these associations and led them and spent the time doing that. He also showed leadership and not just fortitude and strength. And by the way, what you're hearing each and every day here on Our American Stories is free to you. We're a nonprofit, and it's not free to make. And if you have the time, if you have the predisposition, and you love the show, uh, go to OurAmericanStories.com and send a little help our way. A contribution, a small one, a monthly one, an annual one, would go a long way towards keeping us bringing you this great and free content. And telling the story of America to Americans is what we plan to do here on Our American Stories, and we hope we're doing it to your satisfaction. Let's continue with our fabulous storytellers and the now 27-year-old Theodore Roosevelt. Here's McGrath and Blake. Roosevelt uses his slow times on the ranch for writing. Before he came west, he authored his first book, The Naval War of 1812. Now he completes his second book, Hunting Trips of a Ranchman, 
and is well on his way to finishing a third book, a biography of Missouri's famous senator, Thomas Hart Benton. His foremen and cowboys see him at his desk for hours, getting up now and then to pace about and then go back to writing. When Roosevelt is not writing during slow times, he's hunting. He bags all the big game of the West. Eluding him until the end is the mountain goat, the surprisingly tough, wary, and sure-footed critter is found only at higher elevations, most often on steep and rocky mountainsides above the tree line. Roosevelt isn't able to shoot one until a professional hunter, Jack Willis, agrees to take him along on a hunt in Montana. After a couple days of grueling hiking and climbing, Roosevelt misses an easy shot but the next day he makes, in the words of Willis, an impossible shot and drops a mountain goat at a distance of a quarter of a mile with a shot through the heart. A day later, Roosevelt and Willis are working their way along a narrow ledge when Roosevelt slips and falls headfirst off the ledge. When I saw him fall, said Willis, I wouldn't have given two bits for his life. Roosevelt skids and bounces 60 feet down a rocky slope before his fall is stopped by the branch of a pine tree. He comes to rest at the base of the pine, still clutching his rifle, but without his glasses. By the time Willis reaches him, Roosevelt is on his feet saying he's okay. Searching for a time, he finds his glasses which miraculously are not broken. Back up the slope, the two of them climb and continue the day's hunt. Willis loses his last skepticism of the Easterner turned Westerner. There was another fellow in the Medora area named Jerry Packard, who was something of a troublemaker. And he came out to Theodore's Elkhorn Ranch one day while Theodore was out hunting. And he was talking with Bill Sillwall and said, yes, this is a very nice place. And word got back to Sillwall that Packard in, in town in Medora was saying, you know, he wanted to take the Elkhorn Ranch. And he said, if Roosevelt wants to pay for it, he can pay for it, even in blood. Well, word got back to Sillwall. And as soon as Theodore returned from his hunting trip, Sillwall said, hey, you know, you, you got to be aware that Packard was making these threats. Theodore said, oh, okay. So he saddles up on the horse, rides over to Packard's cabin, knocks on the door. Packard opens it, and he says, I understand you have threatened to kill me. I'm here to ask when do you want the killing to begin, and if you have anything to say against me, say it now. And about all Packard could do was uh, stammer and stumble and say something to the effect of, well, it was all a mistake. They remained friendly, even years later when Theodore was coming through on his 1903 Great Loop tour as president and stopped in Dickinson, Packard was there, who at that time was serving as a law officer, and they greeted each other heartily in that, but no mention of that incident. Another time when Theodore was uh, riding along and he, uh, he was riding with uh, Lincoln uh, Lang 
uh, to a, going to a cabin for, where this lady made these beautiful buckskin shirts. They're riding along and they hear this chirping noise and squealing noise. And they stop and they notice that a bull snake has wrapped its coils around a jackrabbit and is strangling to death. Well, Theodore jumps off his horse and with his quirt, which was a, it's a leather whip, small whip that uh, cowboys would use and wear it around their wrists to whip their horse. He proceeds to whip the daylights out of the snake and kill it, and he uncoiled the jackrabbit out of the snake's uh, uh, tightness, and he's holding it in his arms, cradling it in his arms and petting it while, you know, the rabbit is kind of gaining its senses back, and he's sitting there, there in the middle of nowhere and just gently stroking the rabbit on the head and on the back and then puts him down and the rabbit scurries off and he said there goes a sore but wiser rabbit Roosevelt's many hunting trips make him aware of the need to preserve the natural habitat of the big game of the west as a consequence he founds the Boone and Crockett Club Named for two of his heroes, the club is dedicated to conserving the wilderness and to what he terms fair chase hunting. Roosevelt loves his new life in the West, but Mother Nature is about to turn against him and all other ranchers on the high plains. The summer of 1886 is unusually hot and dry, and the normally abundant grass disappears. Ranchers purchase hay from farmers, but the demand soon exceeds the supply. Cattle begin losing weight and some die. Cooler weather comes in October, but then a blizzard hits in mid-November. Day after day, snow piles up and temperatures drop until they dip well below zero. Then in early December, a Chinook wind drives temperatures up as much as 50 degrees in one day. The snow begins to melt. Then suddenly the temperature drops again to 10, 20, 30 degrees below zero. One morning, a temperature of 41 degrees below zero is recorded. The melting snow is turned to an ice sheet. A cattle can't paw through it to get to the feed. More snowstorms arrive driven by powerful winds from Canada. Cattle starve, cattle freeze to death, and cattle suffocate when buried alive in snowdrifts. The era of the open-range cattle industry dies in the winter of 1886 to 1887. Roosevelt loses more than 60% of his cattle, and he was one of the lucky ranchers. The way of life for the cattlemen of the High Plains that has prevailed for the preceding 20 years is over, never to return. The cowboys have an old saying that somebody's all hat and no cattle, which means they're all talk and no action. Theodore definitely was all action, and the people understood that. Maybe not the people in Washington, but the American public understood it and embraced it. And... While he was president, he set aside 230 million acres for the American public to see, established 51 bird sanctuaries, 
eight national parks, 18 national monuments. He and William Halliday started a breeding program at the Bronx Zoo for the American buffalo. It's rather ironic that the man goes to hunt buffalo and he becomes known as the great conservation president. Late in 1887, Roosevelt leaves for New York. He will come back to his ranch, but only for visits. However, it is his years as a rancher in Dakota Territory that helped make Theodore Roosevelt the man he becomes. The man who organizes the Rough Riders and leads the charge up San Juan Hill. And the man political boss Mark Hanna calls that damn cowboy. And you've been listening to Roger McGrath and Michael Blake tell one heck of a story. And by the way, McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. He's a former U.S. Marine, a former history professor at UCLA, and he's appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries. And we are lucky to have him as a regular contributor here at Our American Stories. And Michael Blake, well, he's a two-time Emmy-winning makeup artist and respected film historian. He's the author of the informative and easy-to-read biography, The Cowboy President, The American West, and the Making of Theodore Roosevelt. And by the way, we love to hear your suggestions for stories about American history, including stories about your own history and your own town. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. There are all kinds of history to be taught and all kinds of tales to be told. And we'd love to hear your stories. Again, send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. That time in the Dakota Territories, what a mark it left on Roosevelt's life. And what a market left in American life. 200 million acres preserved, eight national parks, perhaps the first American conservationist, and certainly the first American president who thought about our land in this way. Again, the story of Theodore Roosevelt, that damn cowboy, here on Our American Stories. 